Okay, good morning. We're going to continue our Bible study on the book of Romans, and we are looking at a very interesting passage in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Now, I know I've said this before, but we need to remember this. This is not the complete passage that Paul wrote about this subject. The complete passage is Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 23. That's the complete passage. That's three times longer than this, and this is long. So in order to make it more teachable and in order to make it more, is learnable the right word? I, I broke it, I'm breaking it up. And I'm even breaking up verses 18 through 32 into different parts so that we can understand it better. And like we usually do with the Bible, we take a passage like 18 through 32 and we say, okay, we're condemning homosexuality. And that's usually what people get out of this. And that's not the main subject that Paul is talking about. Um. The issue is an issue of righteousness. How can God continue to stay righteous by pardoning the guilty? That's the issue. Because in Proverbs it says, whoever pardons the guilty is a partaker of his sins. And God pardons the guilty all day long or nobody would be saved. So how does God do that? Now you have to understand something. When the New Testament was being written, if you, if you read Paul, Paul writes like a lawyer. And he's, he asks questions and he answers those questions. He creates a problem and then he solves the problem in his writings. That's how he writes. That's how he thinks. And the reason he's doing this is to speak to the Jewish people who already know the Old Testament, supposedly. And... He's, he's trying to reason with them. The Bible says he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath reasoning with them. He dialogued with them. He went back and forth with them, questions and answers, questions and answers, questions and answers. And they were trying to find fault with this sect of Judaism. At that time, this looked like it was going to be a Christianity. It looked like it was going to be a sect of, of Judaism. And when you look at the early history of the Christian church, If anybody on earth should have failed in their mission, the apostles should have failed. And they didn't fail. And within 300 years of the resurrection, Christianity was the dominant religion in the world. It was not the first religion in the world, but it became the dominant religion in the world. And there's only one way you can explain this. Forget being a theologian for a minute. Quit being... Forget being saved for the, just for, the, for the sake of discussion here. From a historical standpoint, from a purely historical standpoint, you cannot explain the success of Christianity around the known world at that time except from one perspective, that these people really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They, they really believe that. And, and that's what empowered them to go forward. The Holy Spirit lived within them, and it was what they talk about really is true. That's the only thing that explains this. 
because there wasn't any money in it for them back then. There wasn't any fame in it for them back then. Today, ministers become millionaires because they sell books and uh, get on TV. Back then, it was an illegal and persecuted religion. The Jews didn't like it because it completed Judaism. The pagans didn't like it because it condemned their works-based salvation system in their own pagan religions, their doctrine of devils. And, and so Christianity had no, no sponsors. They had no government that sided with them. They had no large group of people that supported them. It was primarily the poor and the uneducated and the illiterate that were members of this organization called the church. And they succeeded. And you just, it's fascinating when you think about that. So Paul is speaking to the Jewish people about something that they're very well aware of. The issue of righteousness. And he is, he is teaching how Christianity differs from Judaism. And he is solving this, what is called the greatest theological conundrum. How can God pardon the guilty and remain righteous himself? And he solves that problem with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so this is the beginning of it. He's stating what the problem is. The problem is that people have made an exchange. They've changed, they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of man. They've exchanged, they've made a divine swap. And that's what causes these results. So as I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, this verse, um, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28 repeats a phrase, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. That's called the judgment of abandonment. That is when people continue to sin without conviction. They continue to sin without remorse. They continue to sin. They shake their fist in God's face. They refuse to repent. They refuse to change. And so God gave them over. And so now they can't repent. Now they can't be saved. Because you can't be saved unless you can repent. And they can't repent because God gave them over. It is the most frightening judgment. I guess it's not as frightening as hell, but it's almost as frightening as hell. And that tells us that repentance and salvation and conviction and all of these things are works of the Holy Spirit. And the reason we get convicted of sin is because of the Holy Spirit. The reason we choose to repent is because of the Holy Spirit. The reason that we seek to serve God is because of the Holy Spirit. The reason we love God is because of the Holy Spirit. God gave them over. Then that really is the judgment of hell. It, it is. Because as you said, the Holy Spirit has to draw you. That's exactly God right. God said, Jesus says, no man can come to the Father save the Spirit right. draw him. Right. So in essence, that's, I mean, we know, we believe that there's hope until that last breath is gone. But if he gave them over, he's not dealing with them. That's right. Them. He's not dealing with them anymore. So the closest thing that I know in the Bible to this is how he treats Satan. Satan knows he's going to, he there's a day of judgment coming. Satan knows he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Satan knows he's going to be punished throughout all of eternity. And he can't do anything about it because he cannot repent. He cannot 
be remorseful. He cannot love God. And yet he understands the Bible. So that's the, that's the worst of all possible places to be in. Knowing, and it says here, knowing the judgment of God that they who do such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but they take hearty, they, they take, uh, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And so this is, this is another example in the Old Testament is when, is, is with Lot. Uh, the, the, the slaves of Lot had quarrels with the slaves of Abraham. And because they were prospering, God was blessing them and they were prospering. And, and Abraham said, look, we don't want to have quarrels. So you, you, you choose whatever land you want and I'll take what's left. So Lot chose all the fertile valleys. He took all the green fertile valleys and Abraham had the dregs. And God blessed the dregs with Abraham more than he blessed the fertile valleys with Lot. And the, the, one of the chapters ends with Lot pitching his tent towards Sodom. He he, he, he established a homestead near this city. Okay, the next time you see Lot, he's living downtown, right in the middle of it. Now, it, the Bible calls him a righteous man, and I've really struggled with that for 52 years because I don't understand a righteous man living downtown in Sodom. But... That's what the Bible calls him, so I have to back up and say that I'm wrong and the Bible is right. Obviously. And, and so, um, if you do not keep sin at arm's length, then the next thing you'll do is embrace it. And once you embrace it, you won't just do it, you'll defend it. And then you won't just defend it, you'll promote it. And you won't just promote it, you'll condemn those who don't promote it. That's the, that's the progression. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. That's exactly right. So you have to do certain things in your daily life that stops you from sinning. That's what that means. So let's go before the Lord as we begin this Bible study. We've already started, but let's go before the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for the fast that it is fascinating, it is interesting. It is exhilarating, it is stimulating, but Lord, it is also the truth. And Lord, we don't want to just be entertained by the new things that we learn about the Bible. We want to be transformed so that we see Jesus more clearly, that we see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and that we love what we see and that we're changed into what we see. Help us to be that kind of people, I pray, through this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, and, and uh, we, it, we started on page 19 with what does verse 19 teach, and then we've gone into uh, several p- pages of that. And um, the bottom of page 22, I ask a question, what is the truth that we suppress? Because it said they suppress the truth in unrighteousness in verse 18. So what is the truth that we suppress? And the Bible says that ungodly people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the way they suppress the truth is unrighteous, which I don't, I think to me that's a, what do you call it? where you're saying the same thing twice. Um, if you're suppressing the truth, it is unrighteous. So I, I'm not sure how to understand that 
perfectly, but you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So you, you suppress the truth in an unrighteous way. So how could you suppress the truth in a righteous way? I don't, I don't get that. So, and the answer is given in the following verses. So, Sister Charlotte, if you would, read verses 19 through 21. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, for a long time, I didn't understand why you would write something about God and his magnificence and, and why Paul would say, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And then he would add this phrase, or give thanks. Or give thanks. Because you're talking about all these majestic, high, lofty, glorious, magnificent spiritual issues. And then it says, and you didn't give thanks. And I began to realize that the heart of a person that loves God, the heart of a person who has experienced the miracle of the new birth is, is, a, is, a, is a thankful heart. It's a grateful heart. Because why do we understand God? Why is it that we understand the Bible? Why is it that we can comprehend these spiritual truths? Because God has gifted us with that. He's allowed us to understand them. So that tells us that mere study is not the end-all, be-all that we could study, 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 and still be lost. We could understand the Bible and still be lost. Satan understands the Bible so well, he shudders. He believes in God so much, he shudders. So knowledge in and of itself is not the end-all, be-all. It is knowledge to a point. It is knowledge to a certain degree. It is knowledge to a certain conclusion. And the conclusion is that our hearts are transformed and that we're grateful and thankful that we know God. We're grateful and thankful that Jesus saved us. We're grateful and thankful that we're part of God's kingdom. And so that's a humility, isn't it? And we didn't get here because of our own efforts. We got here because God graciously allowed us to be here. And so we, we need to give thanks. And then it says, but they became futile in their speculations. And I've told you this before, when lost people are lost, we tend to think that they just stayed in the same place. They didn't. They continued to study math and science, and biology, and physics, and geometry, and, and, and uh, naval architecture, and uh, how to grow food. And, and so men continued to grow in their knowledge, but their speculations became futile. And, and this is one of my biggest complaints against Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution begins with assumptions. And the assumptions are this. If everything has always done what they're doing now, if everything has always gone on like they're going on now, if the processes that are in place now in the universe have always been there, how long would it have taken to for coal to become a diamond or for oil to, be, I mean, for dinosaur remains to become oil 
or for fossils to do this or, you know, all that. Okay. And that's where they come up with 64, 68 billion years. And I just think they grabbed a number out of the sky because once you get past a million, it's hard to, to, to be finite about that. But it began with an assumption. If the processes that are in place now that govern the universe have always been in place, how long would it have taken? Okay. That's their fatal error. That's their futile speculation because there was an event that happened. And that event was called, is called creation. And it has nothing to do, creation has nothing to do with the way things operate today. And, and let me give you a for instance. We believe, according to the book of the Gospel of John, that God, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So let's assume that G, uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead in 2023 in Gulfport, Mississippi. Well, it would make the headlines, dead man now lives. So what would, what would the authorities do? Well, they'd take him to Memorial Hospital, or they may take him to Garden Park. I'm not sure which one. Depends on how fast the uh, emergency room handles people. Um, if you had to wait too long at Memorial, you'd go to Garden Park. Um, and what would they do with Lazarus? Well, they'd take his blood. They'd check his blood pressure, which is pretty ridiculous. What has that got to do with his resurrection? Nothing. They they put him in the sleep lab and examine his sleeping habits. They'd examine what he'd been eating. Why are they doing this? They're trying to find out how a dead man came to life. They look back into his family history with his mom and daddy. His daddy was a horse thief. His mama was a prostitute. It doesn't matter. I don't, I don't, I'm saying that. I'm just saying it doesn't matter how good or how bad they may have been. None of that has anything to do with how Lazarus is alive right now. It's completely unconnected to his life. The reason he lives is because God sovereignly raised him from the dead. That event has nothing to do with the way his heart beats or the way the blood flows through his veins. Lazarus may have had high cholesterol. He may have had high blood pressure. He may have died three months after Jesus raised him from the dead. We know he's not alive now, so he died the second time. Whatever disease that he had that killed him the first time, he may still have had that disease. I don't know. It doesn't sell. It doesn't tell us. So the point I'm making is that the event of, of resurrection has no connection with the way that his body normally operates, right? Okay. Now, the way his body normally operates is important in a lot of ways, but it's not got anything to do with why he's alive, right? Okay. Same thing with creation and, and evolution. Creation has nothing to do with centrifugal force and the tides and gravity and the, the position of the moon and, and uh, any of the other stuff. Because that's why the tides go far. That's why the seas don't overrun the land. That's why there's polar caps. That's why the earth tilts on its axis and all of that stuff. Those are laws, that, and, and they, they weren't discovered by Isaac Newton. They were given by God. They're laws of nature. They're laws. They're physical laws that are true, and you can examine them, and you can set your clock by them, and you can ex observe them. Okay, great, but they have nothing to do with creation. Creation is a completely separate deal.
And so the fatal, the futile speculation that people make about the universe is that everything that's going on now has always been going on. And that's just not true. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. That's pretty fast. How do you know that light hasn't slowed down? Radically slowed down. My question is, what can we do about how fast it travels? Nothing. Nothing. But how do you know it's always traveled at 186,000 miles a second? You don't. So when they say that star up there is 84 billion years old, it took 84 billion years for that light to reach my eyeball. They're assuming that light has always traveled at 186,000 miles a second. What if it's one millionth slower than now than it was then? That means that star was created about 10,000 years ago, not 84 billion years ago. The point I'm trying to make is that the Bible is true. And when we try to use science as though science supplants the Bible, or science is greater than the Bible, we're making a tragic error. And that's part of what this verse means. They became futile in their speculations. They, they now are speculating that you and I evolved from a one-celled amoeba. And I have no idea why they get angry when I agree with them. Because every time somebody tells me that, I agree with them. I say, you look like you evolved from a one-celled amoeba. Now, I didn't. I was made in the image and likeness of God, but I don't think you were. And they get mad at me when I say that. I say, I think your mama was a baboon. I think your daddy was an orangutan. Mine wasn't, but I think yours was. Isn't that what they want us to believe? It's foolish. It's futile speculations. And then it says their foolish heart was what? Darkened. That's something God did. That's something God did. So they went on and on and on and on and on into their futile speculations. So now, if you watch congressional hearings, the smartest people in the country, supposedly, which I know that's not true, the richest people in the country, the most educated people in the country don't know what a woman is. They're having trouble defining what a woman is. Okay. Their heart's darkened. That's exactly what that means. And so we're, I'm trying to give you real-world examples of what this verse means. And so that is something that was done to them. So they think they're smarter than everybody else. They think you're the ones that's ignorant. You're the ones that's silly. You're the ones that's superstitious because you talk to imaginary friend named Jesus and you think that, uh, that serpents talk and you think donkeys talk and you think people rise from the dead. So you're an idiot. We're educated. We believe in biology and science and all that. And we don't know what a woman is. Now that's smart and we're dumb. That's a foolish, darkened heart, right? Amen. So we suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God, there's your clue. The truth that being suppressed is something known about God. So their problem is not me and you. Their problem is not even the Christian church. Their problem is God. They don't like what God said. Then Paul gets very specific. Here is the truth that is known about God from the created world. Two things, God's eternal power and God's divine nature. And Paul said, those two things have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, the ungodly people who are suppressing this truth, are without excuse. Now, if we're going to be faithful to the Bible, if we're going to be faithful to Jesus, if we're going to be faithful to our calling, 
We cannot agree with these people when they make these silly, futile, speculative, darkened heart statements. We have to shine a light on their foolishness. We have to say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard anybody say, something to that extent. And you can be as diplomatic as you want to, but you need to make sure you refute it because that's the only reason things change. Brother Jody and I were talking before church this morning, and he was talking about talking to people who believe that we initiate our own salvation. And, and yet they'll tell you they believe God is sovereign, which is a fundamental contradiction. You can't believe both of those two things. You have to believe in one or the other. If you're in charge of your salvation, then God's not sovereign. If God's sovereign, then you're not in charge of your own salvation. It's not complicated. It is profound, but it's not complicated. But Jody spoke up and refuted their contradiction. He, he drew attention to the fact they were talking out of both sides of their mouths. And they began to think, and they began to ponder. Well, why? Because he refuted their foolish speculation. Okay, so that's our job. That's the church's job. We stand as the fly in the ointment. We stand as the one who, 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 who disrupts the party. We're the ones that makes everybody unhappy because we don't go along with futile speculations from a darkened heart. And we call it, that's a futile speculation from a darkened heart because that's what God called it. And we don't go along with this nonsense and this idiocy that is not only wrong, it's not only evil, it's not only sinful, it's destructive to the people who are engaging in it. So if you care about people, you'll tell them the truth. You won't go along with lies. Now that means that there is an objective truth about God that we suppress. He's eternal power and full deity. But then he told us that there is another subjective truth, which is the response we are supposed to make or to give or have to this truth about God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Me honoring God as God is my response to knowing the truth and not suppressing the truth. Me thanking, me giving thanks is my response, my correct response to not suppressing the truth, but loving the truth, knowing the truth. And then I won't become futile in my speculations and my heart won't be darkened. That's a response. I don't initiate that. The truth comes first and it is presented before me. The display of God's glory comes first. And it's, un, it's unarguable. It's, I can't ever think uh, what the Declaration of Independence says, the right word. Is it inalienable or unalienable truths? We hold these truths to be self-evident. They're self-evident. What does that mean? You don't have to be taught. Nobody gave this truth. Nobody, the government didn't initiate this. These truths are self-evident. Any moron can see it. That all men are created equal, then they are endued, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable or inalienable rights. I think it's unalienable rights, meaning you can't take these rights away. The government doesn't have the authority to take these rights away. Why? Because the government didn't give them. That's the whole basis of the Constitution. That's our experiment with democracy. 
that there are self-evident, unalienable truths that cannot be monkeyed around with by government. We're the only country in the history of the mankind that believes that. Other countries like England and other people, they, they kind of sort of lean in that direction, but they're not as blatant and, and on target as, as our document is. That among these, these are not the only ones, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the pursuit of happiness doesn't mean whatever makes me happy, like smoking dope or killing children. That's not what that means. It, 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 it does not at all what the word happiness meant in the 18th century. You have to go back and find out what that means. The point I'm trying to make is who God is, according to this, is self-evident because God made it known to them, his eternal power and divine nature. And yet people want to argue about that. Why? Because their, their heart is darkened and they don't even want to honor God. So there's the response that we should glorify and we should thank God. Now, what do we call thanking God and glorifying God? What do we call that? It's the W word. Worship. That's worship. Now, it's not that we stick our hands up in the air during the song service alone. That's worship. It's not the song service that's only worship. What is worship? Worship is how I live my daily life. What I allow to go on in my home, what I do not allow. So, I stop this and start that. Why? Because I want to honor God. I don't want God to be dishonored in my life. I don't want him to be dishonored in my wife's life or my grandchildren's life. When my mother-in-law lived with us before she passed on, she was included in that. When my children were there, my children were included in that. Now my children are gone and we're raising two of our grandchildren. And I'm thankful that we can. Um... They're acting just like 10 and 9-year-old children act most of the time. But there's things they want to do. There's things they do that are not right. Why? Because they're fallen. So I have to stop it. Why? Because I'm worshiping God. So me stopping, me getting, me having a board meeting with one of my grandchildren and applying pressure to the gluteus maximus so that he can have a divine revelation in the cerebral cortex is worship. Now the screams and the cries would don't sound like worship, but the change of behavior proves that it's worship. And until a child is old enough to understand responsibility, the only thing they can understand is pain. So you have to have enough pain to discourage certain behaviors. And then when you speak, they pay attention. If you have to spank your child every 10 minutes, you're, you're doing it wrong. You should spank him one time enough to where he begs God to live. Our father, uh, he, spanked, he spanked us less than our mother. Right, right. Because we and you feared him more than you feared we your mother. way more than we right. did. 10, you, 15 minutes later, we was, we was thinking about after right. our mother right. uh, spanked us, we was wanting to do it again, right. whatever we was doing. right. But you feared your father more than you feared your mother, even though he didn't spank you as much. Right, because right. The, the pain was more. That's right. Right. They Amen. paid attention more. Right. I mean, it's, look at it like this. Use, use Bible terms. Father is law. The mother is grace. That's how you look at it. 
And we need both, don't we? That gets a child well-rounded. So you, you do damage to the child, and, the, and when you go back in the bedroom and your wife says, that was too much, you shouldn't have done that. She didn't tell you that in front of the child, but she tells you that when you're by yourself. That's grace. You want to you correct him. You don't want to kill him. And I want him to realize that when I speak, that he stops. So when I say, child, and they go, huh? Huh? What? Come here, boy. You see this refrigerator? You see this food? Who bought that? You see your clothes? Who bought that? I've earned your respect. I expect you to respect me. Let's try it again. Call his name. Yes, sir. That's better. What, it, 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 the parents don't do that. So I have to do it. So why? Because I want him to be a good Christian. And you can't be a good Christian with no respect for authority. So he makes a bad grade in school, not acceptable. Well, this is the best I can do. Don't give me that baloney. I don't believe that for a second. You're lazy and you're a bum. Now fix it or no, no pleasures. They fix it. So it's not perfect. I make mistakes. I'm terrible about some things. I'm awful. I'm, I've only been doing this for 52 years, so you've got to give me a break. But the reality is you, you, you have to have order or you have chaos. Right? And I don't care if they mess the living room up. I'm not talking about that kind of order. When I was being raised, my, my home was like a museum. And I was scared to death to walk through my own living room because I was scared I was going to break something. That's not a home. That's a house. Children mess things up. Maybe you've noticed that. And I want them to enjoy their childhood. So I just asked them yesterday, are any of your teachers, is anybody in school, talking to you about boys becoming girls or girls becoming boys? No. Nobody's doing that. No. Praise God. Because if they are, I expect you to come home and tell me. And then I'm going to go jerk a knot in their head. That's not going to happen. It's wrong. It's evil. Ma'am? Yeah. Well, it's... It, that, right. Right. All I'm saying, though, is we have to speak out. I'm not trying to be a political activist. This evil has come to our doorstep, and we have to stop it. I'll ask kids that's not. Ma'am, sir? I'll ask kids that's not my kids that. And right, they absolutely. look at me crazy like I'm doing something wrong. Right, right. Well, I'm glad that they're not being taught that around this area yet. But we know it's there's a child in Ocean Springs School, I've heard, that thinks he's a dog. So they've made a little dog pallet for him to lay down in class, and they feed him dog biscuits. I'm not making this up. And he barks in class. Now, now I, I'm not going to bend. That's a futile speculation from a darkened heart. And I don't blame the babe, the child. I blame the parents. Uh, the grown-ups, the children don't run things. The grown-ups run things. Why are the grown-ups allowing this? So these are examples of things where we're seeing evidences that God has turned them over. God has turned them over. God has turned them over. And this is what I'm trying to tell you. When we see these awful, off-the-wall, crazy, sexual things going on in our society, those are not sins. 
that God is going to judge later on. Those are the judgments of God. Because if God darkened their heart, they have no more conviction. And it's Katie bar the door. They do whatever's in their heart to do. And they're not, they're not stopped. They're not hindered. And, and because they're not hindered, because there's no law, because uh, parents just bow their knee to this, they think it's great. And they, keep, they want more. They smell blood in the water right now. They don't, they don't see the church as being strong and influencing the community. They've seen for a hundred years the community influencing the church. So people don't fear the church anymore. People used to fear the church. And we were all better off. When you did things, you did things at night, you did things under the counter, you did things behind the tree. Now they do in broad daylight on the street corner in front of a policeman. We're not better off. I have a sermon. I hadn't preached it in many, many years now. The title of the sermon is, We Have Forgotten How to Blush. I think humiliation is a tool of God. I think it's a good thing for people to be embarrassed and humiliated periodically. That's what changes us, isn't it? Nobody ever volunteers for humiliation, but we all pray to be humble. Well, how do you think God makes you humble? Through humiliation. We get mad when we're humiliated. Especially if we're publicly humiliated, we get real mad, right? Who do they think they are? Oh, I can't believe they talked about me like that. Well, didn't you ask God to humble you? Why'd you get mad? Because you're not humble. It struck a nerve, didn't it? Amen. Whew, help me, Jesus. So here's the truth that we suppress apart from God's grace in our lives. There is a God. He is the creator of all things and therefore is not a God or one of many gods, but the God. And this one God is powerful, more powerful than everything else because he made everything else. And this one powerful God is eternal because there was nothing outside of himself that could bring himself into being. Therefore, we, God's creatures, exist to display his glory and not to compete with him for glory. And we must exist in absolute dependence on him. We do not supply God. God supplies us. And therefore, we are to live in constant gratitude for all of this. That is the truth that we suppress in unrighteousness. So part of this suppressed truth is that we have lined the walls of the church, the interior walls of the church with mirrors so we can admire how spiritual we are and we can admire how godly we are and we can admire how powerful we are in Jesus Christ. That is blasphemy. That is idolatry. The church exists to glorify God. God does not exist to glorify us. And look at verses 25 and 28, Sister uh, Sherry. Bottom page 23. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now notice in verse 25 that the truth that is being exchanged or gotten rid of or suppressed is the truth about God. And the result of this exchange is that these ungodly people worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And this is the same as saying they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but instead glorified the creature and took credit for what was owing only to God. It's the same, it's just two different ways of saying the same thing. So they exchange God worship for self-worship. They suppress the truth that God is infinitely glorious and that we are totally dependent on him. 
Or you can look at verse 28. Brother Vern, look at verse 28 again. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. He abandoned them. He gave them over to a what? A depraved mind. A mind that cannot escape its depravity. A mind that can understand math and science and English and literature and history, but it cannot know God. It cannot understand God. It cannot love God. Um, as we're reading this and thinking about where we are today, that's exactly why they didn't want police or, or why we don't want police. You know, well, we don't want what? Police. Police, right. They don't want any authority to stop right, them. Right, right. Everywhere right. doing what, but yet when it comes to their home, right, then they want to call somebody, and then they get angry because it took them so long to get there. Right. Or they didn't show up. Right, right. That would suppress something. Having Amen. Police. Amen. So, um, absolutely. Now, I do not believe. And I don't want any of you to believe, and I'm going to do everything I can to stop you from believing, that there's some entity on the earth out there that's organizing all of this chaos. That's not true. And so throughout history, people have blamed the Masons and the Illuminati and the, and the Foreign Relations, Council on Foreign Relations and all these different organizations, and they're designing the Rothschilds and all of this stuff, and they are organizing all of this, the United Nations, they're organizing all of this. Uh, what's that guy's name? Soros. He's organizing all of this, and he's in charge of all of this, and his, he's got a plan, and he's working his plan, and that's why we see all this chaos going on. Okay. You've you got to remember something. In order for me to be an anarchist, you have to convince me to be an anarchist. And anarchists are rebels. They don't want any authority. And in the name of liberty, we, we go too far and we end up as anarchists with no authority, not even God. And so um, we usually can't handle much freedom. We usually can't handle much liberty. And that's why we have laws, and that's why we have governing authorities over us, human authorities that are over us, because everybody's not nice, and everybody's not wanting to love Jesus. And so we punish the unruly. Now, unruly people have always been on earth. They always will be on earth. George Soros did not start unruly people. He didn't finance them. That's just not true. Satan did. So you say, well, this is all so well planned and organized, and it seems like there's a, a plan that's working. It is. It is. God is sovereign. Not Satan. Not George Soros. Not Fox News. Not liberals. Not Nancy Pelosi. God is sovereign. And everybody is doing their part to bring about the will of God. So and I've asked this question over and over and over to people. We sing this song, or we, we, we have sung this song about these are the days of Elijah, declaring the word of the Lord. And everybody gets all fired up about this song. 
what were the days of Elijah? God brought a nation to its knees because he stopped rain for three and a half years. And everybody was dying. The cows were dying. The grass was dying. People were dying. Babies were dying. Because God stopped the rain. Okay. And what, what happened that it started raining again? Elijah proved that God was God through the sacrifice. And as soon as the fire came down, everybody felt led to repent, which that's to me half-hearted repentance. And then Elijah took 450 or 400, I can't ever remember which one it is, false prophets down to the river and gave them haircuts below their chin, cut their heads off. And you got, you got, they, what did they do? Take a number and stand in line? I mean, really? I understand the first guy drinking the Kool-Aid with Jim Jones. I don't understand the 394th person that did it. I mean, you're in line. Next, next, next. And you're watching people writhe on the ground and foam at the mouth and die, and you're just going to stay in line and go? That's amazing. All of them didn't drink it, though. No, but, but a lot of them did. Hundreds of them did. So you're at the end of the line watching all this happen. What makes you stay in line? Okay. My point is, liberals didn't do that. There's a spiritual evil. There's a spiritual blindness. Every natural thing has a spiritual genesis to it. So George Soros and Nancy Pelosi are doing what God's allowing them to do. They're not in charge. God's in charge. Now, we don't like what they do, but I don't like what some of the people on my side do either. And, and I was listening to people Thursday night in the Bible study in Mandeville. And it's so easy to condemn a homosexual while you've been divorced and remarried three times. What's that all about? Which one of the two is dishonoring marriage the most? I'll, I'll say the one that's been divorced and remarried three times is dishonoring marriage the most. We don't talk about that anymore because they're on our side. Really? So, I believe in speaking the truth about everything. I want everybody to be saved, but you got to come God's way. You know, it's it's and so the church has gotten so political now that as long as we watch Fox News and we're patriotic and we salute the flag and we support the military, no matter what the military's doing, even if we don't understand what the military's doing or why they're doing it, we're okay. We're Christians. And as long as we say yes, ma'am, and no, sir, down here in the South and eat red beans and rice on Monday, we're all saved. And that's just not true. That's ridiculous. You're not saved because you jump on a grenade and save your fellow soldiers. That's not what saves you. That's honorable. That should be, a medal should be given. We should salute that and be honorable about that. But that doesn't save his soul. You're not, you don't get saved when, when, you, when you fight for your country. You're saved because you repent of sins and trust in Jesus Christ. If you don't do that, you're going to go to hell no matter how brave you were, no matter how conservative you were. So there's many people that's against homosexuality. They're against the sexual revolution that's going on in our country right now. Great, I'm glad you're against it, but are you born again? Because you being against sin is not enough. You've got to be for Jesus. You've got to see him as the treasure of the universe. And if you don't, you're, not, you're, you're going to go to the same hell that the perverted person is going to go to. And, and, and that doesn't sit well with people, especially down here in the South. 
And, but it's the truth, right? So if the shoe fits, wear it. And so not seeing fit to acknowledge God any longer is the same as suppressing the truth. God is true, but since the ungodly people don't want him in their knowledge, they will eagerly suppress the truth. They will exchange it, distort it, hide it, try to change it, and run from it. Now, I'm not trying to get on a hobby horse this morning, but that's exactly my experience of being in the church for over a half a century now. I have seen that 111 times in the church with people about divorce and remarriage. They exchange the truth, they distort it, they hide it, they try to change it, and they try to run from it. Well, it's been five years. I've been divorced five years. Like something magical happened with five years. I don't know what that is. I was asking somebody yesterday, what is it about drugs that makes people smash their fists through the walls? Because every time you go to a crack house, the walls are all beat up. What is that? Is there something in the drug that makes you beat the wall? I don't get it. Is there something about five years that makes divorce and remarriage honorable? I don't get it. Jesus said don't. Said it repeatedly. Right? And then when he talked about the exclusion or the exception, they twist that. They twist it and change it. So it's something that Jesus never said. And then they allow the divorce. And then the pastor lays hands on the new couple and blesses it as though it's okay. You're, you're sanctioning adultery. Jesus said you were, not me. Well, you're just trying to keep us in bondage, brother. I'm trying to keep you faithful to marriage. If the church of Jesus is not going to support marriage, who will? Joe's bait shop? So we have to tell the truth, and we have to teach our children that's wrong. Yeah, but you don't understand how my husband acts. I don't care how your husband acts. God said be, be submissive to him. They should have understood before they married him. Where was, the, where was the leaders then? Where was the church leaders then? I, I, I used to feel complimented when people would call me on Friday, want me to perform a wedding the next day. I said, man, they want me to perform the wedding. They must think a lot about me. They're going to come and join my church. No, they weren't. No, they're not. They just want to rent a pastor for a weekend. And I was gullible enough to fall in for it for several years till I woke up and said, these people are using me. Amen. They're not using me anymore. And the phone doesn't ring much anymore about it either because the word has gone out. Don't call that guy. And so and we just celebrated, me and my wife just celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary. Praise the Lord. So I'm qualified to talk Hallelujah. like this. So spiritual blindness is the point of Romans 1 and 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. In other words, part of our condition is lost people in suppressing the truth about God is that we become darkened. You don't just hold the truth down because you don't like it, but because you can't even see it anymore. This is why so many will say, I don't, I don't suppress the truth of God. I don't think there is any truth of God to suppress. And Paul would respond to that by saying, the only explanation for such a stance in this world that God has made is a darkened heart, spiritual blindness to divine reality. So you've got people that's in church, some of them are leaders in the church, and they come up to me and they say, the Bible is not the word of God. The Bible is a word about God, like Aesop's fables and like the Iliad and the Odyssey from Homer. And I say, like Confucius. No, it's not. 
It's the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of the living God. And it will damn you if you don't go along with it. And then I ask her, who told you that? Who told you that? Well, it's, it's, you don't believe in that God, that, that, a, that a serpent spoke to Adam and Eve, do you? I said, yes. Well, you don't believe that a donkey spoke to a prophet, do you? Yes. I also believe that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I also believe that Jesus lived a sinless life and that he rose from the dead. I believe in the supernatural. I believe in miracles. I believe in angels. I believe in demons. I believe in the supernatural. Do you? And they don't. I said, well, you're a Sadducee. It's nothing new. You're not smarter because you think like this. You haven't arrived at some great revelation. You've gone backward down the mountain to become a Sadducee. They believed the Bible except when it had something to do with the supernatural, and then they rejected it. They weren't even as qualified as the Pharisees were that Jesus never said anything good about. So let's sum up what the truth is that we suppress. The truth is that God exists, and he is both eternal and infinitely powerful, and this God supplies us with all that we have. Therefore, God is gloriously self-sufficient with no needs that we can meet. And this truth is our reason for existing and why we are so thankful for all he has given us for the privilege and the honor of displaying his glory by the way we think and feel and act. Sister Charlotte, look at Psalm 50, verse 23. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. In other words, the truth is that the universe is radically God-centered. It already is radically God-centered. The Bible says the heavens declare what? They do not declare their own glory. They do not declare their own importance. They do not declare their own value or their own worth. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. Okay. So it's already radically God-centered. It comes from God. It exists solely for the display of his glory. And human life is also supposed to be radically God-centered, not by working for God as if he were a very needy deity, but by our being thankful to him and exulting in the grace that so much good comes to us even amid terrible suffering. Please don't miss the implication here because it relates so deeply to the truth that we cherish here at the Covenant of Peace Church. Here is the truth. There are two great demands of God on the lives of all humans. Number one, that we exult in God's bounty to us. That's what thankfulness is. That we reflect or display God's glory in, by, and through the way we live our lives. So please don't miss this. It's right there in verse 21a. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So because we do know God, we have to honor him as God and we have to give thanks. The opposite, right? And this means that God has created a universe in which we get the blessings and he gets the glory. And the way God gets the glory is by our exulting in him as the all-sufficient giver of all things. Now, some might ask, why did Paul not stress here that the failure of mankind is the failure to glorify God and trust him? Why the stress on gratitude and not faith? And I believe the reason is that trust or faith is related to how God will deal with us in the future. But natural revelation, what we can learn about God from nature, does not communicate either clearly or fully the promises of God. The promises of God come to us and are known by us through the special revelation of Scripture. And that's why, we tr that's why trust or faith 
in God's promises becomes so central in how we glorify God according to the scriptures. Sister Sherry, Romans 4, 18 through 22, please. In hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which he spoke, he, he, which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, in the, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Okay, now, I read the Bible that when God told Abraham this, he laughed. He didn't believe. He laughed. When God told Abraham this, Sarah laughed. And God confronted Sarah, and she tried to deny it, and he said, you did laugh. And she got pulled on the carpet. But Abraham laughed too. Abraham saw the ridiculousness of the promise of God, that out of his dead body would come a son, and his son would be, go off, and we're off to the races now. He didn't believe that at first. He didn't, he didn't think it was a good thing at first. And so when God confronted him, he said, yes, may God bless Ishmael. And God said, no. I told you you were going to have a son through Sarah, not uh, Hagar. And he's going to be a son. You're going to have a boy. You're going to name him Isaac. And that's going to be the, the thing. All right. Now. Then Abraham began to, what it said here, I like this. He contemplated, by, in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now good is dead. What does that mean? Yeah, but he thought about it, didn't he? He pondered it. He pondered it. He, 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 how is this going to, I can't do this, I can't do that. How is this going to work? He pondered it, right? Okay. Now, I have caught myself when this church comes into a struggle and I, I'm tempted to say, oh my God, what are we going to do? I am reminded of what God has already done and that helps. How did we get this far? I don't know how we made it this far. So you can't say that if you got 800 people in your church. I'm talking about financially. Because you never miss a payday. You never miss a contribution to your 401. I'm talking about the preacher. Preacher never misses a contribution to his 401k account. He never misses a payment to his medical insurance. He's got life insurance out the wazoo to protect his wife. But when you're in a small church and people begin to leave because the truth of God is being heralded, you go, whoa, what are we going to do? And, and the answer for me is, I don't have a clue what I'm going to do. I don't have a clue what God's going to do. I just know he's going to move. And I'm basing that on what he's already done. I don't believe that I am in wild rebellion to God. I don't believe that I am in knowing, premeditated rebellion to God's will, will and, wor and word. 
I believe that I'm not perfect. I believe that I can grow. I believe that I can change a whole lot of things. But as far as I can tell, I am, I am striving to be in the center of God's will. And that means that I'm in the safest place in all the world. And so if, if the doctor gives a bad diagnosis or if this happens or this, it's irrelevant. I'm in the safest place in all the world and nothing can touch me unless God has allowed it. And if my father who loves me has allowed my flesh or my wife or whatever to be touched, then the promise of God is that that bad thing, that God is causing that bad thing to work together with all the other good things so that the glory of God will be brought about in the fulfillment of our joy. Now, I may not see the fulfillment of my joy till I get to heaven. I understand that. And so it's not what I call good. God works everything for the good. Well, what good? Well, how's that good? Well, it's not about my definition of good. It's God's definition of good, which is his glory. And so God will be glorified. And isn't that what I want, to live my life with abandon so that God is glorified in all that I do and all that I say? So if God can do that and me be a multimillionaire, then praise be to God. If I have to get arrested and beat and lose everything I've got in order for God to be glorified, then may God be praised. Whether Jesus, uh, Paul said, whether by life or by death, I just want God glorified. And that's, that's our, should I be our cry, right? So here, and that, that believing that, it didn't, he didn't know how it was all going to work out. He had no idea how it was going to work out. But he, 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 look what it said, being fully assured that that which God had promised, he was able also to perform. So do you think God is a liar? When you put it like that, most people say, well, no, I don't think God is a liar. Okay, then what he said is true then. If he's not a liar, right? And if, he's, if what he said is true, then I can depend on what he said because he's immutable, he never changes. That means he never changes his mind. So th the, the goalposts don't keep moving. So here is the truth. God exists. And this God is both eternal and infinitely powerful. And this eternal and powerful God is the giver of every good gift. And therefore, our reason for being, our purpose for existing, our chief duty, our privilege, our honor and blessing, the end for which we were created, and the commandment written on every heart is to display the glory of this great God every day, hour by hour, as we live in the exaltation over his bounty to us. And that is the truth that ungodly people hate and suppress in unrighteousness. Now, we like to think that those ungodly people are those people down there in the gutter down there on 18th Avenue. No, some of them are in the church. Some of them are on TV posing as preachers and men of God. They're evil, and they're suppressing the truth of God. They're twisting it, and they're changing it, and they're deceiving people. The question is often asked me, what gives you the right to tell other people how to live their life? Okay, my response is twofold. Number one, what gives you the right to live according to the dictates of your own heart in rebellion to the Word of God? Number two, I don't have any authority in and of myself. My authority is the word of God. And so as long as I'm repeating and quoting the Bible, I'm fine. God used you as an instrument to do his work. Right, but I can't work. make up stuff. Yeah. If I don't like jello with, with uh, oranges in it, I can't expect to impose that on anybody else. I happen to like that kind of jello, but I'm just saying. 
I, I, it's not my whims. It's not my personal preferences. I can't, I don't have the authority to tell you that you can't watch a certain TV program. I can tell you that whatever you watch is teaching you something. Every program you watch, every book you read, every song you listen to, every movie you watch is designed to teach you something. And it's either good or it's not. And if it's good, fine. If it's not, reject it. But after a while, and you keep having to reject everything you're watching, what is the point? If, if you can't ever watch anything that helps your walk with God, what's the point? Your desire to be entertained is so powerful that you're willing to subject yourself to false teaching repeatedly in the hope that you'll be entertained. I, I just don't see any value in that. So in my life, there's very little of that that I do. But I can't, I can't, I can tell you what I just told you. And it makes people uncomfortable because people want to do certain, well, you're saying we can't go to the movies. Um, you can do whatever you want to do. But understand this, that they've, there's producers. That's why they're called producers. It's why they're, they're, they're writers. That when you see that guy crying, he's acting. He's trying to elicit a response from you. And so when the poor, sweet, wonderful homosexual is being horribly attacked by this vicious pastor... He's designed to tell you that Christians are mean and vicious and these people are just sweet as they can be. And that's just not true. There's some homosexuals that are very sweet. And there's some homosexuals that are vicious and barbaric and violent. Both that's true. But it, that's irrelevant. What's relevant is what did God say about things. Augustine, Augustine, do what you want, because if you love God, you won't do what's wrong. So we're free in this sense. We're free now from the shackles of sin to serve God. We're free to have access into the heavens. We're free that there's no middle wall of partition between us and God. We're free in the sense that, that sin no longer dominates us. We are not free to do whatever we want to do or whatever our flesh lusts after or any of that. That's not freedom. That's sin and that's bondage. I, I can remember being convicted of listening to country music. And I like country music. But it's just like whatever song you're listening to that's going into your mind and it's teaching you. So I did away with that and progression through the years okay now there's two games that i like to play on my ipad well i've been convicted because i'm spending too much time there okay so how can i say well i didn't have time to do this that needed to be done right and you ask yourself well why didn't you have time okay 24 hours in a day right and and they're not bad one's a number game, one's a word game, okay? Not you not know? overtly evil. Right, that, that's my point. Right. But it's using time. And time you cannot redeem. Right. 
when it's gone, it's, there's 24 hours in every day. When the Bible tells us to redeem the time, what does the word redeem mean? When you go down and redeem something, what did you just do? Pay for it. You, you bought it back. It was not yours and you redeemed it. You now it's yours. Right. So you've got to take time, the word time, the issue of time, and you've got to bring it back. You've got to reclaim it. You've got to make it useful. If you don't do it in your life, it ain't going to get done. I have to do it in my life. Everybody's got to do it in their life. So my objection to a lot of internet, YouTube stuff, and TV is not that it's always evil and wicked and sexual, but it's a colossal waste of time. You can spend two hours on YouTube and not be educated, not be informed, not be edified, and there's two hours gone throughout history. Well, that's just like when they advertise they. It's good for your mind, especially people with hair the color of mine. You know, and, and there is nothing. But right. it's used time that right. we use more white. The, the Internet is an amazing invention, just like the printing press, just like television is an amazing invention. It has a tremendously good, it's got potential for tremendous good. It can educate, inform. Uh, Ron and I, we, we watch uh, archaeological, biblical archaeological programs. They, they found the, the pool of Siloam. They found it. I saw pictures of it the other day. How did I see pictures of it? I hadn't been over there. And uh, this is an area, they, I'm going to get into that, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, Lord willing. There's a, there's a, um, a monument in Spain that is the, the third most popular place for pilgrims around the world to visit after Rome and Jerusalem. I didn't know anything about it. And there's a footprint in this rock. And they said, that's the footprint of Jesus. Is it? I don't know. Did Jesus go to Spain? I never heard that before. But I'm going to get into it next week. Now, that's that stuff's interesting to me. Um, I really like, and I want, my, and I get my grandchildren, even though they don't want to. I, I like for them to see the blood and the gore, and the inhumanity and the violence and the brutality of war. I want them to see that war is not sanitized. Women and children are abused unmercifully in war. The weakest people in the world are trampled on in war. War is horrible. And we should very reluctantly go to war. And so by sanitizing war, that if we're involved in a war, it means it's okay. That's ridiculous. There is a standard by which we are to define war and whether it's just or not. If it's not just and a, and a Christian goes to a war that's not just and he kills another human being, he's committed murder. Premeditated murder with forethought and malice. He will go to hell for that unless the war is just. How in the world... Are we going to determine that? Well, there was a standard that until President Obama, our military leaders were being taught 
what just war looked like. They're not being taught that anymore. Brother Jody? It can, it can even be just war. If we're not taking care of the home front like we should be, right, right. It, it could be bad on us at, at right. the same time. Right. So, so uh, I walk down the street and I see a 30-year-old man beating a 4-year-old child with a baseball bat. I'm hitting him in the head, hitting him in the face. Now, I don't need to have a prayer meeting. I don't need to see a vision from God. I don't need to have a group with me. I don't need to have a meeting. I'm going to stop it. And I'm not going to do violence to the boy. I'll try to grab the boy and, and, and get him away, but I'll do damage to the man all day long. And I'll stop him. Now, I can't think of a good reason to beat a little four-year-old boy in the face with a baseball bat. I just, I don't, nothing comes to mind. So I'm going to assume this guy's demon-possessed or he's evil or whatever, and I'm going to stop him. I don't... I, I don't, it's, it's, it's the instinct that I have. You protect the weakest ones. When I see a woman, an older woman, being talked down to by a child in a store, I'm ready to shove that little boy's head through the wall. Talk, talk that way to me. Say that to me. And grandma's sitting there, oh, yeah. and, and, and it's horrible. And, and, and it's an epidemic. And all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is that's how you view war. A nation that's a little four-year-old boy getting hit in the face with a baseball bat from a very bigger nation that's got better weapons and stronger armies, you stop them. You stop them. Because by not stopping them, stopping them creates evil, yes. But not stopping them causes more evil. So you stop it. China now is rewriting the Bible so that it goes along with communist propaganda. They're also rewriting the Quran and other holy books, so-called holy books, so that people that read the Bible in China will never know what Jesus really said. So what we need to do is flood China with the truth. Flood it. And in doing that, people will die. People, missionaries will die. People putting Bibles in China will die. Absolutely. But it's a cause worth making. Because those people will never be able to have a real Bible in 10 years if we don't do that. So, I don't want to buy from China. I don't care how cheap it is. I don't want to promote them. And I'm really having a problem now with cell phones and laptop computers. Because the lithium that's in there is being dug out of the ground by child slaves. i got a problem with that. And we should. It's immoral. It's wrong. I don't care how big Apple is. It's wrong. And, and um, so Christians speak up with this stuff. And that's why we stopped slavery. It wasn't the government. It was the church. And, and that's why black people aren't hung under bridges anymore because the church spoke up. And so we have evils in our society today and the church has a duty to speak up. That's why I go to school board meetings. That's why I go to the library. Somebody, one of the library people were telling Rhonda the other day, well, we're, we've lost our funding, so now we're going to have to shut the library down. I hope your husband's happy. I, then don't promote wickedness. Don't promote wickedness. You can have Tom Sawyer all day long or whatever you have. So, so you don't 
my greatest fear is not that I'm going to make somebody upset. My greatest fear, because it's impossible not to upset people. I could get up here and talk about accounting and somebody get mad at me. So people get mad at other people. That's just what people do. But Jesus, what my theory is, is in not speaking out when I should. Yes, sir. Jesus had enemies. Amen to that. And he was perfect. I'm not. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is describing the end of the age and the great apostasy and deception that will come on the world in those days. He says that the lawless one will come with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because, here's why, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Note that the unrighteousness deceives and suppresses the truth. He continues that they are perishing because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So those who are deceived in unrighteousness do not receive the love of the truth. So they suppress the truth. They evade it. They don't love it. Why? He continues in verses 11 and 12. I guess, Brother Varn, it's your turn. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Okay, what does that say? What does verse 11 say? Who sends who a deluding influence? God sends the unrighteous people who do not want to repent, who do want to continue on in their wickedness. God sends them a deluding influence. To what end is this deluding influence? It's the phrase, so that. When you, every time you see so that, that's the purpose behind why God did something. So that they will what? Believe what is false. Okay. Now, what do you call that? I call that God violating the stew out of people's will. Yeah. I call that God imposing himself on others forcefully. He just said he, he sends them a deluding influence to the end that they will believe what is false. Is that God causing them to believe what is false? Yeah. That's what it says. I didn't write that. Why would God do that? I thought God was love. I thought God wanted everybody saved. Why didn't God convict them? Why didn't God bring them to salvation? He convicted me. Well, they were wanting to sin. I was wanting to sin. Well, they, were, they didn't care. I didn't care. Well, they, they, were, they were blatant in their sin. I was blatant in my sin. None of that's true. Right, but why did he strive with me? What, I'm better than other people? No, well, that, that, that God's against premeditated sin. All my sins have been premeditated. There's only one answer and people don't like it. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to set his love upon me, and before the foundation of the world, God didn't choose to set his love upon them. That is it. That is the most despised truth in the Bible. And it's what the Bible teaches. And when Paul teaches it, when Jesus talked about it, when Moses talked about it, when Isaiah talks about it, when Daniel talks about it, when James talks about it, when Peter talks about it, they're completely unashamed of it. They're unapologetic in their pronouncement of this. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's unashamed. You say, golly, brother, Jesus wouldn't do that. He did do it. Why did Jesus speak to them in parables? There's only one reason. 
so they won't know what he said. So they won't repent and get saved. That's what he said. Jesus said that. He said, that's making Jesus look terrible. No, I'm making Jesus look like Jesus. I'm making him look like God. I'm making him look like the Bible describes him. If we're not going to go by the Bible with everything, here's, here's my problem, and I'm going to stop in just a second. I've had this problem since, since day one. If we're not going to go by everything the Bible says, why do we go by anything that the Bible says? What, what, what parts of the Bible are applicable and what aren't? Now, I don't believe we sacrifice animals, and I don't believe we have the dietary law so those part, and the ceremonial law. So those parts have been abrogated by the superiority of the new covenant. But morality has never changed. God's salvation plan has never changed. God choosing people before they're born, before they did anything good or bad, to his own glory has never changed. He did it in the Old Testament. He does it in the New Testament. He's never been any different. And I use the example of the Jew in the Old Testament. I use the example of Abraham. God never asked permission from Abraham. He never counseled with Abraham. He never gave Abraham suggestions. He, he told him what he was going to do, changed his name, told him to get up and go to another country, gave him a son, told him what to name the son. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. If that's not violating human will, what is? How much, how much cooperation? I mean, eventually Abraham did what God told him to do. Praise God, eventually so did I. But the only reason any of us do what God tells us to do is because God's already changed us. That's what gives us the power and the ability to obey him and love him and, and see him as the treasure of the universe. And so we don't need to shy away from sovereign election. We don't need to shy away from predestination. Thursday night this man was saying, well, God loves everybody. I said, really, why is everybody not saved? You've only got two choices. God's not sovereign, and man is, or God never intended to save him in the first place. That's your two choices. And I believe God's sovereign. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time in, in, in Bible study. Thank you for this wondrous book that we call Romans. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you, God, that you, did, you performed miracles with angels and with other people to give us these 66 books. And Lord, all through history, you perform miracles and acts of providence to preserve the word of God for us. And now, God, we have a reliable copy of the original autograph of the inspired and inerrant and infallible word of the living God. Help us to love it. Help us to understand it. Help us to study it. Help us to uncover its truths so that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.